Well, hey everyone, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. Today we're in week number three in our flagship series that we call The Pursuit. You can find resources to go along with everything we're talking about today at PursueGod.org forward slash go. I'm joined in the studio once again by Pastor Ross Anderson and my beautiful wife, Tracy. Ross, why don't we get started by just real quick, we, you know, we're in week three, but where, did, where have we been so far in weeks one and two before we get into this third topic? Yeah, for sure. The first three weeks are kind of foundational to set the, set the tone for the whole uh, process of the pursuit. So first of all, we started about talking about God and His heart toward us, how God wants a relationship with us. He's pursuing us. He wants to be found by us. It's an invitation for us to pursue Him in return. And then last week we talked about how God has revealed Himself, but He revealed Himself in the Bible. And so we're going to—the whole thing, the whole pursuit— Everything about following Jesus is defined by the Bible, so we better be sure that we're confident in what the Bible has to say. We looked at all the, a lot of the reasons why we can trust the Bible, why it's reliable, why we can look to it as a final authority in our lives. And that this third foundational subject is really helpful right at the very beginning, because it's, it's how we think about ourselves and other human beings. It's a key part of a Christian worldview, so it's part of our pursuit of God. We're going to be talking about um, really the nature of humanity and, and what God has done, uh, to how he's made us and what that, why that matters. And we're, you know, we're also going to talk about the fact that a biblical worldview, which, which I would say is not the dominant worldview in America anymore. Um, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't call America a Christian nation anymore. I don't know. I mean, I guess you could debate this in your small groups or with your mentor this week. Uh, but certainly I think we've, we've fallen away quite, quite a long ways away from our, our biblical roots. And yet what we're going to see today is that your biblical, the biblical worldview is infused in our culture. It is still infused in our society, and it's, and it's a good thing that it is, and you'll see why. And all of it, all of it has to do with this fundamental, according to the Bible, there's a fundamental difference between humanity and everything else in creation. And we see this in the creation story. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. If you, you can read it for yourself, you'll, you'll see that, that God creates day and night. He creates land and sea. He creates plants and trees and fish and birds and animals. And then after all of this creative work, God makes this statement. He says, it's good. He says, it's good. But he wasn't done. On the final day of creation, after everything was in place, the whole world was prepared, God created finally human beings. And that's when he updated his assessment of creation. And we see it in Genesis 1, verse 31. It says, after he created human beings, he looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. It says, evening passed, morning came, marking the sixth day. So it wasn't until the, he created human beings that we get a very good. We get, we get this ultimate sort of stamp of God's approval on all of humanity and so the, I guess the question is, what, what, was, what was it about human beings, Tracy, maybe you can answer this, what was it about human beings that got a very good instead of what the birds and the plants and the tadpoles and the toads and everything else, they got just a good? What was it about human beings? Well, what we see is that God changes his language to this idea of let us make man in our image. So there's a change from let there be light, 
or plants or trees to suddenly this more personal kind of the marquee event, something different was about to happen. And it was that God created man in, in his own image. Yeah, and that's really well, the title of today's podcast is Imago Dei, which is, which is a Latin phrase for image of God. And it comes from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Verse 26 says this, Then God said, let us make, like you said, Tracy, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They'll reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, stock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And so this, this idea here is what we're going to be talking about today throughout this lesson is Imago Dei, how f- fundamental that phrase is, that idea is to a biblical worldview, how it's really, it really leads to the core ethic of biblical Christianity. It's shaped entire cultures. It's impacted personal lives of the followers of Jesus for millennia. But we're also going to see that, it, that it's impacted lives of, of even people who aren't Jesus' followers. You'll see why here as we go today. And it also is going to give us the answer to the, to the ultimate question of what is the meaning of life. And so let's talk about this. We're, we have three things we're going to talk through today as we unpack the idea of Imago Dei. And the first one is this. The Bible teaches that humans are created in the image of God. And because of this, this is really important, because of this because of Imago Dei, they're worthy of dignity and respect. Okay, so we see there's a couple things I see here in, in Genesis 1.26. Tracy, you already mentioned the first one, that, that it starts off with, with God saying, let us make human beings in our image, whereas before he said, he said stuff like, let there be. So he was using, uh, what would that be, the third person, right, when he was creating... Um, the some of the other some of the other animals and light or the day and night and light and darkness and separating sky from land he said let there be so that's third person and now he gets really personal here on the sixth day this is the first time he gets personal and he says let us make so there's a hint there that god is giving his personal stamp of approval on man and woman but to me there's there's something else and ross maybe you could help us with this our resident theologian he, he talks about making humans in his likeness, right? And that's different from when he talked about earlier in the chapter, when he talks about plants and animals reproducing of their own same kind. And now when he talks about man, he talks about man being not reproduced in his own image, but in God's image. What's the difference? Yeah, it's really an interesting concept because it places human beings... Um, at this this fascinating position between God and the rest of creation. So human beings are the pinnacle of creation, but 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 we're not equal to God. You know, we're not like uh, like the same kind of being as God is. So image the image thing. The context suggests that that the image of God means that we have this delegated responsibility from God to take care of the world, to to be involved in co-ruling under Him, making the world become everything that He all the latent potential that he put into the world, we get to unlock that. But then as you look also at other parts of the Bible and you just look at the, nat- the nature of the created order, the other thing you see about the image of God is that there is a likeness to God. It's not a physical likeness as if God were some kind of a, a human form because God is spirit, but it's, it's a likeness to God in that we mirror certain attributes and qualities of God. For example, God communicates. 
you know, human beings have the ability to communicate, the rest of the animal world doesn't have the capacity of language. Um, human, God is creative. Human beings are creative. The rest of the animal world doesn't, doesn't create art. Now, now we're limited. We, don't, we can't create something out of nothing the way God did, so we're not infinite, but we, we have capacity for emotion, for rational thought, for relational interaction. Um, so a lot of things that, that human beings uniquely in all creation reflect something about what God is like, and so we're mirroring God to the, create, to the world that he made. Now, I think it's important to go back to what you said before. That, that doesn't mean, this might be a little bit of an aside, but especially for us, we do ministry among Mormons, right? So a Mormon would look at that and say, see, look, we, we can be God-like. We can, be, we can become gods someday. So I think it's important for us to make sure to make a distinction here that this passage is, when, we, when it says that we're creating the image of God, that doesn't mean that someday we will be gods. That doesn't mean that someday we'll have our own planets or we can progress on to godhood, which are, which are some teachings in Mormonism and, and probably some other religions around the world. The difference is that this idea of Imago Dei in biblical Christianity is that it gives us this inherent sense of worth and value and dignity, and it sets us apart from Everything else that was created, it sets us apart even from animals. Yeah, this is a, so. When the animal, this is another aside too. The yeah. whole animal rights movement, right? Biblically, it doesn't have anything to stand on because you, animals don't have the same rights as human beings mm. because they're different. We're we're different, and and also you know it doesn't mean it means all. It doesn't mean that like that we have a spark of divinity within or that we're part of God in a big generic mm-hmm. general sense either. That's those are not biblical concepts that inform the, this phrase. But again, what it does do is it gives us, as opposed to many other religions, where there's this contrast between God and man and this huge gulf, this huge divide, we see from the first chapter in the Bible that humanity is dignified, not debased. Now, in the next lesson, we're going to talk about what, what went wrong. We're going to talk about you know, the fact that we're creating the image of God and then something went wrong. And there's a little bit of a cliffhanger for people to come back to listen next week. But but for now, what we need to make sure to affirm is that human beings, according to the Bible, human beings are the crowning achievement of God's creation. We're the masterpiece of his creativity. And so again, this gives every human being inherent value and dignity, and it's the key to understanding God's attitude toward the world. In particular, it's the key to understanding his attitude toward humanity, toward human beings, toward man and toward woman, because more than anything else in all of creation, people matter to God. Now, we saw that a little bit in week one. We talked about that, that God is pursuing us. So clearly, we matter to God. There's something, there's something very dignifying about humanity when we read God's Word. There's something, there's something, it's almost a little bit embarrassing to read about how much God loves us and pursues us and is willing to forgive us and build relationship with us. But the reason we're saying this is we want to make sure people understand that God's Word says this. This is what the Bible teaches us about humanity. And it also means then, the second thing, this Imago Dei idea then, is the basis for blessing all of humanity. It's because of the image of God concept that humanity can be blessed. This is God's heart for us. It's his heart for Christians, and it's his heart for non-Christians. It's, this is something that he wants to do for every single human being because we're all created in the image of God. 
So let's talk, Tracy, for a second about the Declaration of Independence. Because to me, this, I think, is one of the simplest ways for an American to really understand this point, the fact that God, that the, the biblical concept of Imago Dei leads us to some of these concepts that we just spent the weekend celebrating as we were walking through Washington, D.C. and looking at all these monuments and standing in Capitol Hall and, and, and you know, reading about the Declaration of Independence, the 56 signers of the Declaration, and how brave they were to sign their names on that document. But a lot of people maybe don't realize how fundamental those words were that, that, the, that I think Thomas Jefferson wrote. I don't know who, whoever wrote the, those or whoever gets credit for it anymore. He said this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable, unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so let's break each one of those things down and see, because again, what it's a powerful statement that, that this document is making, that they believe the Founding Fathers said, hey, wait a second, it seems self-evident to us, it seems right to us that human beings should have these rights and they're not given to us by kings or revolutionaries or institutions or governments. They're given to us. They're not even given to us by a document, I think we should remember. They're saying they're given to us by God. They're given to us by the Creator. So to me, this screams at us Imago Dei. The reason they would say this is because the concept of Imago Dei, whether they realized, or not, realized it or not, was behind those words in the Declaration of Independence. Well, you know, he says we hold these truths to be self-evident, but actually they're not self-evident. If you look at the history of humanity around the world for thousands of years, uh, humanity as a whole has not upheld the, those values, those human rights, that all humans are created equal. They're, 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 they may have seemed self-evident, but that's only because the, the culture of England and America that gave root to our revolution, our founding fathers, was fundamentally, fundamentally biblically based, and mm -hmm. the Bible had shaped that culture for several hundred years. And so it was obvious, if your starting point is the Bible in some real sense, then it becomes, oh, yeah, there is a creator, and yes, he has made human beings in his image, and so therefore, yes, um, men and women are equal. Um, everyone made in his image is equal with, with others, and that there are certain rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness that flow out of that identity. Yeah, what I would say is that, you know, that's the age-old question. What's the meaning of life? Who am I and why am I here? And so we can see that in the first chapter of the Bible is answering that question. So it's not Thomas Jefferson's idea. It wasn't any of the founding fathers' idea. It comes back to what God says. When he created us, he did it. Uh, he's answering that question for us. It's for us to discover that. But God answered the question by saying, who are we? Well, we're image bearers of God, and he has a purpose for us. And we find that in Genesis 1, and the Bible tells the rest of the story. Well, yeah, so let's take let's let's break this down. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Let's trace these ideas back to the Bible. And we could spend hours talking about this, mm -hmm. but let's just briefly trace these ideas back to the Bible. Where in the Bible do we find the idea of the sanctity of life? Where in the Bible do we have the idea of the right to life? When, when the founding father said, we have the right to life, who says? Who says we have the right to life? 
we find it actually in many places in the Bible, but we find it in Genesis 9, verse 6. Noah, God is saying this to Noah in Genesis 9, 6. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. And here's why. He says, for God made human beings in his own image. Mm -hmm. So right here, and this was after the fall. This was after um, Adam and Eve screwed it up, which we'll talk about more next week. But it's really interesting that even after the fall, even after the image of God was marred in humanity, even after they rebelled against God, even after they made, you know, made the wrong choice and made mistakes, even so, chapters later, God still says, even so, you have, you have the image of God in you, and therefore, your life matters. Therefore, someone can't just take your life, you know, willy-nilly and not have to pay for it. This is a really, this is a fundamental statement in Genesis chapter 9 in the Bible. You know, you look at uh, today, an application today, everybody's talking about the war in Ukraine, and you hear a lot of talk about war crimes. And so where, where soldiers have been killing uh, non-combatant civilians, and so we're up in arms about that. Well, why? Why is it, why is it wrong to kill a, a non-combatant civilian? Why should that be a war crime? Mm-hmm. There's only one reason why, and that's biblical, biblically that that human being is made in God's image. Right. If you take this away, then we don't have a guarantee of life. We don't have you know, any um, basis to say you have a right to live. Mm-hmm. Um, based, it's only the, the rights are only, only belong to people with power mm-hmm. apart from you know, this biblical foundation. Which is, how, which is really how the history of the world has worked. Mm-hmm. I think uh, some Americans are naive to think that this is how it's always been. It is n- no, this is an experiment. This is a, this is a brief experiment <laughs> in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. American democracy, this idea of that we, could, that we would have the gall to declare our independence from a ruler, from a monarch, from, from a king. This is a radical idea that we got from the Bible we, we got this idea mm-hmm. that people do matter. You know, you mentioned Ukraine, but what about Uvalde? Same thing. Mm-hmm. Why, why, why are we just all so up in arms about this, this kid that walks in? Well, why can't he walk in and shoot a bunch of kids if he wants to, if he feels like it? Because, because how he feels isn't ultimate. Right. There's something that's more ultimate than that. Those kids were made in the image of God. And those, their, their lives mattered, not just to their parents. Right. Their lives mattered to all of us. And increasingly in our culture, people don't have an answer. They just, the best answer people have is, oh, because it's wrong. Because we've started to lose the connection mm-hmm. to the ultimate biblical answer to why life matters, or why there's an inalienable right for humans to live. Which is, the sk- to me, that's what's scary, because it's scary to think about where this might be leading our culture as we detach ourselves more and more from a biblical worldview. Um, it's it's a little frightening to think about what what what's going to be next as we just say as we live according to the kind of the way that the people lived in the judges period where just mm-hmm. everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes mm-hmm. because there's just a natural consequence of that for for individuals and for hum, for society in general there's a natural consequence not even just a just a God's judgment consequence. There's just a natural consequence to everybody just doing whatever they want. There's no rule of law anymore. It's really bad news for people who don't have power. It is. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay, so that's the right to life. What about, what about liberty? I mean, think about this concept, how new it is to human history, that the, the founding father, father said, we have a right 
the creator has endowed us with a natural right to freedom and to liberty. You know, the, this, I, this idea of the Bill of Rights, which, Tracy, we stood there in, um, in uh, the National Archives the other day and looked at the Declaration of Independence, and we, we looked at the Constitution, and then we looked at the Bill of Rights, and we went over there, our son's a, a history buff, and he said, this is the real one. This is the most important one, because he said this, is the, this was just so unique in the history of, of humanity that there'd be a Bill of, Bill of Rights that would give... I mean, could you imagine some of the other cultures, how unfathomable the Bill of Rights would have been to generations who suffered under the likes of like Ivan the Terrible or Vlad the Impaler or Genghis Khan. These were all people who ruled and brutally ruled well before the Bill of Rights or America. But, but, but the Bill of Rights was in existence during the brutal regimes of people like Stalin and Hitler and Mao and Saddam. I mean, it's just to even just to think about Ukraine, how Ukraine might think about something like that. <laughs> they, would, they would love to have those kinds of rights. They would love to have some freedom. They would love to have some liberty. And the question is, where, where, would the, where does this come from? Where does this idea come from in the Bible? Where do we see it in Scripture? How, how can we claim that this is actually a part of the Imago, uh, Imago Dei issue from Scripture? Well, to me, this is one of the most beautiful things about the the creation story and what God does creating Adam and Eve and then what he says to Adam. He says in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, he says, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you're sure to die. Now, to me, what makes that interesting is imagine being in this beautiful garden I mean, beautiful, like nothing we've, we can ever imagine or the most beautiful place you've ever been on earth. Think of that and just the lushness, the, the life that was growing, how there were beautiful trees full of fruits that God didn't create Adam and Eve as, as robotic, right? That they had no ability to make their own decision. We talked earlier about in being created in God's likeness and his image is that he wanted man to have the freedom to choose that liberty because otherwise is how loving is that if if god created man and but then doesn't give them the ability to choose anything other than what he programs them to do no there's something more beautiful that god decided to create man with the ability to choose right part of the the ability to reason the ability to say i'm going to obey or i'm going to disobey and sadly, what we'll, we'll cover next week is what happens when what Adam and Eve end up doing with their liberty and their freedom to choose is they were enticed by the idea of being God rather than serving and being obedient to him. And so we see that then even in um, the Declaration of Independence, this idea that we have the liberty and freedom. Well, that's a God-given thing. That was God's idea, not the Founding Fathers. You know, what's really interesting about that passage, Tracy, is he says you can, you can have any uh, plant, any fruit in the garden that you want. He says here's an exception, um, but, but there's consequences if, with this exception. So I think today people think of liberty as just the first part mm -hmm. of that. You can just do whatever you want, boom, and whatever. But no, really, biblically, liberty is we have the freedom to choose. We have the freedom to evaluate the consequences. We're not driven by instinct like animals. In, animals don't think about the consequences. Yeah. They're driven by their instincts. 
So liberty means that we have this freedom of the will that we can consider the consequences and we can act accordingly. It doesn't just mean, you know, do whatever you want, but it means that, that, that we can factor in all the, all the issues and all the things that lead to a good decision if we, if we choose to. Yeah, someone said you're free, to, you're free to make your choices, but you're not free to choose your consequences. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what we see in this passage. Right. God is saying, you're, you're free. You really are. And think about the abundance he gave them, all the fruit in the, in the garden, all the trees. And there are some people, I think, that look at life from, from the list of don'ts instead of look at, looking at life from the list of do's. You, you know, to look and see the abundance that God gives us, the, the incredible abundance that he gives us. But he still says there's still a right way to do it. There's still a right way to live. But he's not going to force us to live the right way. But we also can't force him to to give us different consequences. Mm-hmm. So he 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 has freedom as well, and he's the judge and ruler of the world. And so he he has he will rule the world with justice. But in the in the context of that, we have freedom, which I just love that that's in chapter two of the Bible. Mm-hmm. That li- the concept of liberty, and, and that's just the beginning. Like I said, we could go through. So we could spend the next two hours talking about all of the all of the liberty verses in the Bible where God gives us liberty. He invites us to have freedom. But the idea is right here in chapter two of the Bible. So God gives us the right. It's the founding fathers were tr- were right when they said this, that the Creator gives us li- the the right to life, and He gives us the right to making our own choices. And then finally, they said, and then He gives us this this pers- this ability to pursue happiness and this is the one that maybe at first when we read this we were like does that is that really a biblical concept the pursuit of happiness is that really a biblical concept but the more i thought about it biblically and compared that the idea to other world religions i thought no that that is absolutely in a part of imago dei it's absolutely a part of the, the Bible story and the, and the ethic of the Bible. Because, I mean, we just mentioned how the fact that God created, created the earth, the world, everything in it, days one through five, and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. Another way to say that is who's, who's having a good time? <laughs> he's saying, this is good. This is, he's, making a, he's making a value judgment. It may, another way to say it is it made him happy. Mm-hmm. It made him happy when he created the world, right? And then he created humans, and he said, now that made me really happy. You know, I think Tracy, you said it in the small group video for this week. God was having a good day when he made humans. The scripture, scripture, the a biblical worldview has as a major part of it this incredible optimism that God wants us to experience joy and happiness and the most out of life. We talked about it in week one, that John 10, 10, one of the theme verses for this whole series that Jesus came to give us life and to, and to give it to the full. Yeah, to me, because God is the designer and he knows exactly what he was doing when he created us, that of course he knows then what would make us the most happy, right? Because he wired us exactly the way he wanted to. And he understands like that unique imprint that we each have as image bearers of God with our own personalities and temperaments and skills and abilities and all the things God did in creating each one of us. Just this, he didn't create us to, to be 
bored, to be sad, to just have a life of long suffering. He created us then to have a purpose, that those things that he gave us, those unique traits and things that we have given by our creator, that we live out his purpose, that's true happiness. It's not in the stuff that our world's trying to sell us. It's about living out what God created us to do. Yeah, and let's, Ross, you're going to have to be our world religion expert for a minute here. Let's contrast that with Buddhism, for example. So, you know, the kind of the core idea behind Buddhism, as I understand it, if you can really summarize it in, in a, just a few words, and we're, we're going to do that for Christianity in a second as well. But for Buddhism, I think the best way to summarize it is life is suffering. Yeah, that's the first noble truth of, of, the, of, of uh, the Buddha. The idea is, be, is, so he observed what we all observe, that life is hard, life is suffering. We'll talk about that again next week about why. We have a different idea of why than the than Buddha had, because the Bible explains why life is suffering. And so, but his answer was to then, to extinguish yourself, to, that, that your own personal individual existence had no meaning, and the more you could detach from r- reality, the more that you could become distant and, and not have any feeling or any response toward the world around you, then the better off you're going to be until ultimately your, your individuality is dissolved into the great eternal oneness of, of, of being. And so what's the point? What's the point of living? That, that's not joyful. That's not happy. That's not, the, the Bible uses a term of, called shalom, where everything is well-being, and it's like that abundant life that we were talking about in week one, where, where things are integrated and whole, and you're, and you're connected in community and relationships, and you're enjoying uh, what God created, and, and all is well. That's a biblical vision. This is, the Buddhist vision is like, oh, nothing. There's that just nothing. depressing. <laughs> It is. Well, and it is depressing. And, you know, Kurt Cobain is the ultimate example of that in our culture. You know, here's a guy, the, the lead singer of Nirvana. Here's a guy that dabbled in, in Buddhist thought. And, and that idea ultimately led to his suicide. It, ha- it kind of had to. And right at the height of his wealth and fame and uh, popularity. And, and here this guy takes his own life. And it's, it's sad to think that that, you know, that is the end of, that's sort of the natural end. Nothingness is the end. So my existence doesn't matter. Well, that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches imago Dei. Your existence does matter because you are made in the image of God. You have value. You have worth. You, you have the right to life. You have the right to liberty. You have the right to to the pursuit of happiness. And I love how the Apostle Paul said it in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. He says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I, can't, I couldn't imagine Buddha saying that. I'm mm-hmm. not trying to pick on any religions here. I'm just saying. We're just co- trying to compare this worldview to other worldviews that mm-hmm. people might be dabbling in. Paul says, always be full of joy in the Lord. And then he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. I love that. And we see this idea, this concept. Jesus was was a person, when I read Jesus' words, I, I just read a guy who had joy in his life. Not, not necessarily giddiness, but he had joy and happiness and fulfillment in his life. And that's what he wants for all of his followers because of Imago Dei. So 
one more thing I want to cover as we're talking about this idea of a biblical worldview and how Imago Dei, the image of God, changes the way we experience the world, the way we think about the world, the way we think about our lives, our culture, everything. And it's just this idea of the meaning of life. Imago Dei gives us the answer to the meaning of life. And it's not that life is suffering. Right, the the answer to the meaning of life, I think, if we if we use the words of Jesus, is just to say this: it's to love God, it's to love others, and even to love ourselves. And it comes from Matthew twenty two, starting in verse thirty seven, where where the these spiritual leaders come up to Jesus, and they were steeped in all this knowledge of God and and the Torah, the Old Testament, but he, they missed the heart of God altogether. And so when they, they, they approach Jesus, they try to make him look foolish. And they asked him to identify the most important of the Ten Commandments. And, and actually, his answer made them look foolish, because here's what he said. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, all the law and all the per- demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And they weren't even commandments. They were essentially, the, the first part of that was the Shema, which was something that the Jewish leaders would have recited since they were little boys. So they knew that one by heart, but just because you know how to say the words doesn't mean you really understand them. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's, he's kind of like he's saying to them, look, you've had the answer right under your nose this whole time, and you've missed it. You missed the whole point of your life, the whole point of, of anyone's life, according to God. It's just to love. It's just to love God, love others love yourself. So let's finish this podcast by kind of talking on a practical level about what what was he talking about there? What is it what does it mean and how can we do how does the idea of imago dei tie into loving God, loving others and loving yourself? Let's start with loving God because I think it all starts here. What what did what did he mean by love the Lord your God? Well, first I I would point out again back to the idea of the image of God that the animal world animals don't have the capacity to love God because we're talking about a choice. First, it's a choice and an emotion. There's, the Bible talks about several ways to love God, several aspects of that. It's a desire for Him. It's a loyalty to Him. Um, it's an obedience to Him, as we'll see in our verse today. But animals don't have the capacity to do that. We have the capacity to, to love God because we're made in the image of God. And so we can have relationship with Him. As the Son loves the Father and the Father loves the Son, we have Again, not in, a, in an infinite or perfect capacity, but we do have capacity to do that. Yeah, to me, it's just that imagery, too, of the, of the child and parent or father relationship that my ability, my desire to love God is I want to please him. Even like I wanted to please my earthly parents the way I have always taken great joy when our kids have wanted to honor us and the way they've obeyed our rules because they understood they were for their protection. So that idea for us and loving God is is just a wholehearted devotion, loyalty, like you said, Ross, just just giving your whole self. And, and the practical way it's expressed is that you obey what God says because he's the creator and he knows. So anything he says to do is for our best. Anything he tells us not to do is for our protection. Yeah, 1 John 5, 3 says, loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Mm-hmm. That's a real simple definition of loving God. I mean, that's what John is saying. He's saying it's just real, it's real simple. You can say you love God all day long, but if you don't really keep his commandments, then you don't love God. And the irony here is 
the the Pharisees are asking Jesus about which commandment is the most important one, and Jesus says, "Love God." wasn't even one of the commandments. It was like the introduction to the commandments, like the framing principle mm-hmm. behind the Ten Commandments. But really, if you examine the Ten Commandments, it's the first four of the Ten Commandments is about having a right relationship with God, being in, you know, having no other no other gods before, not taking His name in vain, keeping the Sabbath day holy. So it's He's essentially saying, look, if you get your relationship with God right, you know, a lot of people call that your vertical, your vertical relationship right, your relationship with God right, then what can happen is the the next six commandments of the Ten Commandments, and that is. The, those are the rela- those are the commandments about loving your neighbor. So commandments like not murdering and not coveting and not stealing and not lying and things like that. And it's real simple. He's just he's just he's basically saying, guys, you've had it all along and you've totally missed it because when you, if you really do the first thing right, then then what's going to naturally happen is you're going to start obey actually being able to obey the commandments. And a lot of, a lot of those commandments are about doing the second thing right, which is to love your neighbor. And Tracy, there's there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 13 that I think is, it's the love chapter. And the, it, it describes the biblical idea of love. It's so beautiful. Anytime, you know, I mentioned this in a wedding, people come up to me and say, what was that poem? <laughs> and it's not a poem. It's from the Bible. And it is, it's beautiful. It's one of Paul's, I think it's one of his best little pieces of poetry, if you want to call it that. Why don't you read it? Love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. And that's why Paul said in Romans 12, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good, love each other with genuine affection, take delight in honoring each other. And then John says this in 1 John 4, he says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God, and anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So it's this whole thing, you could tell John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, that John, this, he's, he's writing these words later in his life, after having learned these concepts from Jesus, walking with him for a few years during Jesus's earthly ministry. And now I could see this old man, John, reflecting on this, and he's processing it at maybe at a little bit of a different level, but he's saying the same kinds of things. He just, he keeps saying these same things. If you love God, you're going to love other people. That's just how it works, which is what Jesus said. The, the, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with everything you have, and then you can love your neighbor because the, because B follows A. It's just the way it's going to work. When you have a when you have love for God, your relationship with God, which is related to the Imago Dei thing, your relationship with God is going to be reflected, right? Because you're in the image of God, and the way God loves you and cares about you and gives you value and dignity and worth, now what you can do is you can then reciprocate that to the people around you. Right. We're really there's a sense in which we're never more like God than when we love others. Because that's the character of God. That's the image of God in us. We have the capacity to do that. But I, you know, sometimes the New Testament talks about love one another, and it's talking about inside the church. But Jesus said, "Love your neighbor," and that's broader than that. And so, it, you know, it's really easy for us human beings to 
to tribalize and to, you know, kind of pull into our little groups. And, and yeah, we love all the people who are, you know, in our group and we vilify sometimes the people who aren't in our group. And I think that's, I think uh, this idea of the image of God and all human beings made in the image of God completely cuts the legs out from under that kind of tribalization or kind of us and them mentality or, or that some of the um, prejudice and some of the um, bias that we see among human beings, because every human being is made in the image of God. So I was thinking about this. This is, I, this is as we're recording this right now, um, it's Pride Month. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I don't agree in the least with the values that that represents. And I know a lot of Christians, conservative Christians, just have a, you know, that gets sticks in their craw, mm-hmm. Pride Month. You know, because and the reason I the reason I disagree with that perspective is because we talked about last week how my authority in my life that governs my my thinking about things is God, and He's spoken about that in the Bible. He's made it clear what He thinks about human sexuality. But I was realizing at the same time, oh, that's the same God who also said, "Love your neighbor," and love is patient and kind. So I'm going like, okay, it doesn't just apply to people like us or people that have our same values or that agree with us about things. This is the challenge. Is, is the people who aren't like us and who don't even like us, who people who maybe are, don't hate us and hate what we stand for are also made in God's image. And, and they still then, they have value and dignity, not based on their opinion about things, but based on their uh, created order of God. And that causes us, us to, I think, respond to them with compassion because, because like, what we, like we saw in Genesis 2, how God said, you're free to eat from any tree, but there's going to be consequences. Yeah. So, so all sin has consequence, <clears throat> any unrepentant sin. Anyone who says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live my life and do what I want, and kind of flips God the middle finger, I think whether you're, whether you're gay or whether you're heterosexual and living in sexual sin saying, I'm going to do whatever I want, I think as followers of Jesus who stand by God, by God's word and trust his word, I think our response to that is say the image of God is in that person still, but I have such compassion mm-hmm. and my prayer is that they would see who God is, mm-hmm. that, they would, that they would turn to God and submit to God on his terms, not, not try to have everything on their terms, because that's the only way to come to God. And we'll talk about this yeah. in the weeks ahead. Yeah. But that's the only way to come to God. So I'm glad you brought that up, Ross, because you know we walked around D.C. this weekend, and same thing. And I and I really was trying to be aware of the fact, just looking at these people, just thinking about their stories, mm-hmm. and thinking, I don't know their story. I don't know what has led them to make some of the choices that they're making. But but you know there are all kinds of sinners. Some sinners we can relate to a lot better, mm-hmm. right? And so we cut them a little bit of slack. A lot of slack, yeah. But other sinners. Are disgusting to us, but the Bible says that all sin is disgusting to God. Right. And so, but the reason it is is because He made humans in His image. Right. He made them for something more than that. For something more. So that the temptation is to dehumanize right people, and the image of God, if you're a Christian, should prevent that from happening in my heart. Yeah, that's good. So then I see a third thing in this when when Jesus gives this answer, He says, "Love God, love your neighbor." And he says, as yourself. So the implication there is that we should love our, ourselves. You know, it's interesting because I think <clears throat> 2,000 years ago, I don't, I don't know that Jesus even had to explain that. 
Uh, you know, I, I, I wonder if, I don't think that junior high was around 2,000 years ago. So maybe people <laughs> didn't hate themselves or have a bad self-image or whatever else. I think there was just a, there's just a, this is something that's really sad about our culture, I think, is people struggle in our culture today with loving themselves and knowing knowing that they have worth and value. And that this brings us right back to this dignity thing. Mm-hmm. Imago Dei, the reason we can love ourselves is because we're made in the image of God. It's not about how we look. It's not about what we've done. It's not about um, what people's opinions are of us. It's not about our accomplishments. It's not about our own righteousness, our own ability to be obedient to God, because we all fall. The reason we can love ourselves is because we're created in the image of God. Yeah, to me, I think, especially in our culture today and some of the pervasive issues that we're hearing is God doesn't make mistakes. God isn't creating us and then being like, oops, I created you this way, but you know everything about you then says that you should be something else. I think, again, coming back to keeping it simple, that the meaning of life comes from the creator in Genesis 1, that the purpose in life comes from Genesis 1 and 2, and this idea that God created us with a purpose to live out what he's decided who we are because he created us. That everything else that comes into play that confuses us or makes us wonder or question, we just can keep it simple and recognize God didn't make a mistake when he thought up the idea of you. He knew exactly what he was doing. But like what we'll talk about next week, the idea of sin and how that mars and confuses and robs, that's what the enemy is all about, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so I just, I hope that for people today as we're thinking about just kind of this worldview and this grid, that God answers the questions for us in the beginning of the Bible about who we are and what we're supposed to be about, and that you can celebrate what God created you individually and the things that you question or the areas where we feel like we fall short or, or it was a mistake or I'm wrong or I'm broken, that those are lies that the Mm -hmm. enemy's telling you that's not what God's speaking over you. And the heart of this, if we understand the image of God, so in our culture, the way people find their worth and their values by comparing themselves to other people, I'm more successful or I'm more popular or I'm more attractive or smarter, whatever. But, but, but if, if it's based on the image of God, then it really doesn't matter. It's not a comparison to other people because they're also made in the image of God. And so self-love in this sense is not that I'm better than anybody else. That's what our culture, I love myself because I'm better than... But, but this, is, this is based on God's assessment, not, not any kind of comparison. It's, it's vertical, not horizontal. Mm-hmm. And that makes it... It doesn't matter if, if I'm if I failed or if I'm old or if I, you know, whatever the human frailties and debilities of life are, are irrelevant Mm -hmm. because it's based on God's assessment of who I am. If you want to learn more about Imago Dei and how it really does shape our culture, it shapes our personal lives as followers of Jesus. It even shapes your life if you're not a follower of Jesus. If you want to learn about how it gives us this answer to the question of life, you can find more resources to talk about today's topic at pursuegod.org forward slash go. 
That's where you'll find all of the lessons for the pursuit. This is lesson number three. And then be sure to join us next time for lesson four because that's where we're going to talk about what went wrong. You know, what, what ha- if we're creating the image of God, what happened? Why is everything so screwed up? We'll get to that next time. Hey, listeners, this is Brian Dwyer reminding you to rate this show on your favorite podcast app. That really does help us when you do that. That way more people can discover this podcast and start listening. And also, don't forget to share the podcast with a friend.